watched as the enemy that hadn't been run through or run over ran away from his mighty French gendarmes. Only moments before, the Imperial Habsburg heavy and light cavalry, some 2,000 riders strong, made of mostly Spaniards and some Germans, had emerged from the forest and the fog. The river Ticino exuded a dense and pervasive gray soup that muffled and bounced sound while blinding a man to everything but the few yards in front of him. The morning had been confusing and at times somewhat muddled for the French commander. But now, a breathless and yet elated Francis Valois, king of France and the first of his name, was triumphant and master of the battlefield. Early that morning, rumors had swirled through his camp. Soldiers could spread rumors almost as well as they could spread the pox, maybe even better especially rumors that were full of doom and gloom. Word went round Francis's camp that the imperialist dogs had breached the walls of Visconti Park and were even now marching to relieve the city of Pavia itself. The park, an old hunting ground, had some wooded areas and broad flatlands, as well as some low, wet, boggy areas. The winter season had made everything wetter and worse, but Francis had to set up camp somewhere. When he had arrived to take Pavia months back, Francis believed the city would fall quickly. It had not. His attacks failed repeatedly, and his advisors at one point urged him to go back to Paris, tail tucked. Your Highness, save your brilliant reputation and let someone else finish the job, they had said. The fools, Francis whispered to himself. He momentarily thought of having them all stripped of their lands and exiled, but he quickly shook off the idea as nothing more than a base notion. The king's chivalric code kept him from acting out such petty whims. Besides, he had been right to stay, and even more so about the rumors in the camp. Maybe now they would give their warrior king a little more credit when he spoke at the military councils. When Francis first heard the possibility that the Imperial forces were in the park ready to attack, he'd known right away what was going on. Only a few days prior, the bastard Lenoy and his whelps had mounted night raids ranging around the park. They were trying to probe the French camp for weaknesses. That much was clear to Francis. Today's attacks were nothing more than further probing by Lenoy. Granted, Francis thought in much greater force than the previous times. As the morning went on, though, the picture began to crystallize for the French king. The enemy came through the woods to the northeast of Francis's camp, a group of imperial infantry emerging first. They were within range of one of the French batteries and came under heavy fire, forcing them to take cover. Francis saw the opportunity to strike the now isolated imperial cavalry that had been supporting the infantry. The Spanish and German heavy and light cavalry under Charles de Lannoy himself had formed up to take on the gendarme charge. The French heavy cavalry outnumbered their prey by a wide margin, and more importantly, they significantly outweighed them. 
Francis formed the French cavalry into four ranks with the gendarme at the front. These were his sworn and finest men. Fully encased in glittering plate armor, they were closer to God's warrior angels than mere mortals. The massive horses they sat astride boasted more protective steel than almost all the infantry on both sides. In their hands were huge and thick lances ready to impale the Imperials on the very ground where they stood, or better yet, pin them to each other. Once the lance was full of the dead and dying enemy, it was dropped and a sword or hammer or battle-axe was drawn to continue the slaughter. Behind these sentient battering rams were the slightly less armored support cavalry with lighter lances and less plate mail. The two rear rows was made of irregulars and light cavalry, and their job was to fill in the gaps or use their mobility to outflank the target. It was, thought Francis, like the very best of God's creations, both beautifully simple and marvelously effective. At about 7.30, Francis had his men in the right formation for a charge. On seeing the French form up, though, Lenoy had tried to steal the momentum, and his imperial cavalry, although outnumbered, charged first. Francis, not to be outdone, had scoffed and ordered his own charge. Victory this day would be for France, and nothing and no one would steal it from her. To Francis, the rumble of the charge sounded dull. The pounding hooves had intertwined with the thrumming pulse in his ears. That constant, almost pleasingly repetitive noise broke at the ear-shattering clash of first contact. The two sides slammed into each other at full tilt, and the Imperial cavalry was immediately thrown back in disarray. The Spanish cavalry fought hard, each man trying to make up for their numbers with their ferocity, but it was too much. The French gendarmes used their greater mass to break the imperial line into smaller pockets. Then they isolated and collapsed the pockets with brutally efficient savagery. Limbs and bits of men and horses flew through the air and littered the ground. The screams of pain, anguish, delight, and fear mingled together, creating the age-old tune of battle. By 740, it was all over. The Spanish cavalry, or what was left of it, fled south and east as fast as it could. In ones and twos, the imperial survivors rode like demons to escape the massacre. Nowhere could be far enough away to feel safe from the metallic monstrosities that they had just escaped. Francis had been right, and he had won. He knew that chasing the destroyed enemy would achieve little. His men were built for short, powerful bursts, not the long, drawn-out chase of a broken enemy. Besides, there was that small band of infantry that came first that still had to be crushed. He would allow his men a few minutes to catch their breath and bask in the glory of victory, and then it would be time to finish the whole damn thing. With Lenoir snapped like a twig, Francis thought maybe it would be the right time to test the city's defenses once again. 
Leaning over to his left, Francis laughingly said to his friend, Lord Lacoon, Now I truly am the Duke of Milan. Happier than he had been in years, maybe ever, Francis set about regrouping his now disheveled force. They had pushed the Spanish back some four or five hundred yards, and his men were strung out and milling about in between the northern woods and the edges of Mirabello Castle. The structure was technically an opulent and extravagant hunting lodge, but in reality it was a castle, complete with moat and drawbridge. Francis had used it as his base at the beginning of the siege, but felt it was too exposed and so had moved further northeast. It had been the right move, clearly, he thought. The first twinge of doubt came as Francis began issuing his new orders. Around the castle were several low ditches and irrigation canals. Movement in some of these trench-like areas caught his eye, on the French right flank, it appeared as though infantry were scurrying around, preparing for something. Francis's first idea was to send a rider to order his cannon to fire on the low-lying enemy, but that wouldn't do. The successful charge had left his cavalry right in the path of any incoming fire, and though he loved his new powerful weapons, he had no faith in their accuracy. As he tried to puzzle out what to do next, the far right of his line seemed to just melt away. The crackling pop of arquebus fire, a hailstorm of lead, hurtled through the air until the bodies of Francis's gendarmes stopped it. The little balls, no more significant than a coin in size, but quite a bit heavier, crashed through even the thickest plate armor. Then the murderous little orbs slid through flesh, cutting arteries, exploding organs, and obliterating bones. Neither man nor horse could hide from the deadly rainstorm. Francis's first thought was to charge the source, but that idea died almost as quickly as his right flank. To assault into those low areas would just lead to horses and men toppling over or breaking legs. The result would be the same. Death. To the north were the woods that the Imperial forces had come out of earlier in the morning. That was a no-go also. His men would be separated and vulnerable in among the trees. The French king hated it, but he realized in that moment that retreat was the only order he could give. Back! Back to the camp! Back! Francis screamed at his disjointed cavalry force. He could tell the men were agitated and on the verge of panic. Nothing is more hateful and terrifying in battle than having an enemy strike you and being able to do nothing in response. Francis led the way. He trotted to set the direction and then picked up the pace to try and get some momentum going. The ground was sloppy and waterlogged. The horses were sinking right in, some up to their knees, rendering them immobile. Others were breaking their legs in their haste to retreat. More and more of Francis's heavily armored gendarmes were ending up on the ground and in the mud. Usually they would be fine, they would be able to move in their, their heavy, thick plate, 
but the mud sucked them into the earth and held tight to their limbs, locking them in place. More and more, the arquebus fire kept coming, and now Francis could see imperial men-at-arms dashing forward to kill the French wounded or the unhorsed. They had to get out of the kill zone. To the trees! Make for the wood, now! Make for the... Trees! The order of last resort died on the French king's lips. Pouring from the tree line to the north, there were thousands of the insanely colorfully clad lansknecks. These men, these warriors from the empire, they carried massive pikes and huge swords, both of which were made to stop cavalry dead in every way possible. There would be no escape into the trees. In fact, now the lansknechts began to press forward, and only more death lay to Francis's left. He dispatched a rider to bring up whatever infantry, whoever was available, to come bring everyone that the man could find. By 8.15, the tide had turned. The French infantry... German turncoat, lansknechts, known as the Black Band, had come, they had fought, and they had died. The Imperial Infantry was pressing forward on Francis's front and both flanks. The constant withering arquebus fire could not miss his tightly packed cavalry. For the Imperial arquebusers, it was like throwing a handful of sand at the ocean. Every shot rang true. Wherever Francis looked, the nobility of France, his men, his friends, were in the act of dying. Old La Tremois suddenly stood in his stirrups, twisted and fell. Francis could see three little puncture wounds on his chest and knew that lead death had cracked the old warrior open as easy as an egg. Brave Bonnivet was turned into a glittering pincushion as pikes from every angle and direction lifted him bodily from his horse and threw him to the ground. Even Laplace, fearsome fighter though he was, did not survive the onslaught. A glancing arquebus shot struck his helm and knocked him from his horse. As he lay in the mud face down and dazed, he tried to lift himself, the mud embraced him like a lover, just long enough for a Spanish fighter to slide a dagger blade through the gap in Laplace's armor, slitting his throat. Blood spurted as the dagger was pulled out and covered the Spaniard's face. Francis, furious and afraid for the first time in his life, brought his sword down, cutting the Spaniard's head in half and mixing the blood of killer and killed. As his men and army perished around him, Francis decided the only honorable thing to do was die. He would not wait for some random shot by a filthy fishmonger or farmer playing fighter for the day to finish him off. The king of France pointed his terrified but obedient horse at a massive enemy and gave the horse the heels. Spurred on, the poor animal could do nothing but run as fast as it could, despite the blades and points in front. Francis saw a flash of fire, and a low line of smoky cloud appeared to his right. 
and then the horse that was under him disappeared. Francis soared through the air, the weight of man and armor crashing down 15 yards from where his horse, dispatched by a whole row of arquebus fire, had collapsed dead. The king of France rose shakily to his feet and drew his sword, swinging it in a full circle, trying to give himself some room to maneuver in when the inevitable rush came. His left arm was numb but intact, which was good because he'd need it. As he slowly spun around, Francis realized he was utterly alone and entirely surrounded by imperialist infantry. He was afraid, but so were they and he could see it. After all, none of them had ever killed a king before. Most had never even seen one. Francis Valois tried to figure out which one of these men would pluck up the courage to attack him, and that's when he heard the unmistakable sound of a man charging him from behind. Right. I hope you enjoyed our little historical fiction appetizer for the Battle of Pavia. The Battle of Pavia was a decisive one in a long series of wars known as the Italian Wars, and it was in this battle that Francis's life was changed forever. Uh, to get more stuck in on this battle, check out this week's main episode coming out on Friday the 28th. If you liked what you heard today, obviously... Please rate, review, and subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use. Thank you very much, and have a good night, guys.